Brent Pullman puts it this way, when I'm at the pizza buffet and I've already had more than enough to eat, and I know there's a good chance another slice will make me miserable for the next two to four hours, and I eat it anyways, I lack self-control. When I decide to stay up late and play video games or surf the internet, knowing full well that I have to be up early the next morning, and I'll be so tired I'll feel sick all day, I lack self-control. When I procrastinate doing my taxes, leaving myself in a last-minute panic to get it done, I lack self-control. When I spend, 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 and never save, I lack self-control. When I watch five hours of TV a day, but spend only a few minutes in Bible study and prayer, I lack self-control. When I choose the pleasures of sin, enjoying them for a short time, forfeiting the long-term and eternal blessings of living in obedience to Christ, I lack self-control. Self-control is the ability to choose wise actions. While it often boils down to our own personal decisions to choose wise or foolish actions, one of the problems of today's generation, young and old, is that we have a propensity to blame others for our actions, issues, problems, and circumstances. We have shunned personal responsibility and do not own up to our own actions, personal decisions, and mistakes. Perhaps we've forgotten that one of the fruit of the Spirit that comes from a Spirit-filled life is self-control. You know, the book of Proverbs has a lot to say when it comes to the subject of self-control. So let's study what it has to teach us about the areas in our life where we should practice self-control as we continue our sermon series, Foolproof, A Guide to Wise Living. As we look at five areas in our lives where we are to exhibit self-control, let us begin by first talking about the need for self-control. Turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28. Proverbs 25, 28. I read now Proverbs 25, verse 28. Whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. This verse tells us that a person who doesn't have self-control is like a city that is unprotected. And when a city is left unprotected, it is vulnerable to attacks and even defeat by the enemy. Likewise, a person who doesn't have self-control is vulnerable to failings and sins and defeat by the enemy. You know, throughout the Scriptures, we see that even great men and women of faith who lack self-control, even for a moment, suffer greatly. We remember Moses, who lost his temper and got angry at the people he was leading for their grumblings. And so he disobeyed God by striking a rock for water instead of speaking to it as God commanded. And for that momentary loss of self-control, Moses was punished by God and not allowed to enter the promised land. That's why the Bible reminds us of our need for constant self-control, because without it, our lives are unprotected like a city unguarded, which can lead to undesired results or even deadly consequences. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18 reminds us that we need to be daily filled with the Holy Spirit. And Galatians chapter 5 verse 23 reminds us that we are to live out self-control as a fruit of the Spirit. Living out a self-controlled life can be very difficult at times, like wanting that extra piece of cake but fighting the urge to take an extra bite, or wanting an extra hour of binge-watching your favorite TV show or Netflix show instead of studying for your test, or sleeping in versus much-needed exercises. But living out a self-controlled life is for our own good and worth the effort 
to live out with the enablement of the Holy Spirit. Now that we know its importance, what are five areas in our lives that we need to exhibit self-control? The first area we are to exhibit self-control in is in the area of our emotions. Self-control number one, control our emotions. Control our emotions. Look with me at Proverbs chapter 29, verse 11. Proverbs 29, 11 tells us this. A fool vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. This proverb is self-explanatory, saying that foolish people act on all their feelings and emotions without exhibiting self-restraint. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with showing emotions, such as it's okay for men to cry and women to get angry. But those raw emotions should not be acted on in unhealthy, destructive ways. Because we may regret acting out on our raw emotions, knowing that our emotions often change. What we feel in the heat of the moment may not be how we really feel once we get a hold of our emotions and rationally consider various factors. For example, if you're very angry that your boss reprimanded you for failing in a task and take it as a personal attack on you, you may be tempted to retaliate by hitting your boss or quitting your job at that moment. And it may make you feel good at that moment to do those things, but it would be rather foolish because the consequences would be you being charged with assault or you not having a job. You may find that if you hold back on your initial emotions, exercise self-control, and rationally ponder what your boss said, then what your boss said to you was really only a gentle reminder for your own self-improvement, which he's done with other employees, because he wants to see his staff do better and succeed in their job. Or another example, a teenager not getting what he or she asked for may throw a tantrum or even scream at their parents, I hate you, you are terrible parents, or you never give me what I ask for in the heat of the moment, which may elicit an even more consequential response from the parents of not only not getting what you asked for, but also being grounded or having privileges taken away. If emotions were controlled and one didn't lash out, then only the request would have been denied, and you would not have experienced the more severe consequences. How many tragic road rage incidents could have been avoided by simply moving on. I hope you see my point. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 29 addresses specifically controlling one's anger emotions. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 29 says this, He who is slow to wrath has great understanding, but he who is impulsive exalts folly. The Bible tells us those who can control their anger show great understanding, but those unable to do so and are quick-tempered will do foolish things. I think of what Samson did in Judges chapter 15, when in his uncontrolled anger for having been fooled by his wife's father, he used 300 foxes to burn the fields of the Philistines, which resulted in the Philistines exacting revenge and killing his wife and her father and resulted in an escalating cycle of violence. Anger is one of those emotions we must learn to control with the help of the Lord. Perhaps it would help if we thought about what it is we're angry about. Are we rightfully angry because God's name and character have been impugned? Or do we get angry simply because our rights or something we want have been restricted? Paul David Tripp writes, Take anger, for example. Think of how little of your anger in the last couple of months 
had anything at all to do with the kingdom of God. You're not generally angry because things are in the way of God and His kingdom purposes. You're angry because something or someone has gotten in the way of something you crave, something you think will inspire contentment, satisfaction, or happiness in you. Your heart is desperate to be inspired, and you get mad when your pursuits are blocked. My friends, this social media generation, young and old, is seemingly always angry and outraged at many things. But a lot of that anger and outrage is often misplaced. The political cartoonist and op-ed writer Tim Kreider has provided us some insight into the world of outrage we currently inhabit, a world that has been amplified by the dawn of the Internet and its dark recesses, better known as the comment section. So many letters to the editor and comments on the Internet have this tone of thrilled vindication. These are people who have been vigilantly on the lookout for something to be offended by and found it. Obviously, some part of us loves feeling number one right and number two wrong. But outrage is like a lot of other things that feel good, but over time devour us from the inside out. Except it's even more insidious than most vices because we don't even consciously acknowledge that it is a pleasure. We prefer to think of it as a disagreeable but fundamentally healthy reaction to negative stimuli, like pain or nausea, rather than admit that it's shameful kick we eagerly indulge again and again. It is outrage porn, selected specifically to pander to our impulse to judge and punish to get us righteous indignation. But my friends, the Bible wisely cautions us to control our emotions, especially when it comes to anger and outrage. Ask yourself the question, what are you angry and outraged about? Is it for God's glory or for your own purpose and self-satisfaction to be in the right? The second area we are to exhibit self-control in is in the area of our words. Self-control number two, control our words. Control our words. Look at what Proverbs chapter 15 verse 1 says. Proverbs 15 1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. In the heat of the moment, oftentimes a simple sorry and a kind word will quickly diffuse a tense situation while a curse word or sarcastic comments can quickly inflame a situation. That's why this proverb says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. While we may be tempted to get in the last word or have the last say, or find the need to always defend ourselves, the Bible from the Old Testament to the New Testament constantly remind us to control the use of our tongues, our words. I like how Henry Ironside puts it. It is considered unmanly by many not to resent an insult or to allow wrathful words to pass unchallenged. But it takes far more true character to meet an angry man in quietness of spirit and to return cool, calm words for heated, hasty ones than it does to give railing for railing or malice for malice. The latter bespeaks a man who does not yet know how to rule his spirit the former, one who has his personal feelings in subjugation. You know, I remember a few years ago flying to the U.S. to speak at a conference and happened to stand behind a person at the check-in counter at the airport who was very angry. I'm not sure what had happened, 
but the passenger was having a heated argument and shouting at the ticket counter agent. When it was my turn to be served, I saw that the agent was still a bit upset, and I simply told her, Ma'am, I witnessed what happened, and I'm so sorry that you were treated in that way. It was uncalled for and undeserved. You're doing a great job. Keep up the good work. The agent said thank you and processed my flight check-in. When she handed me my boarding pass, she said to me, Mr. Tan, I've taken the liberty to upgrade your seat to business class on your flight to the U.S. Thanks for being kind and encouraging. Imagine just three to four sentences of kind words lasting no more than 30 seconds and costing me nothing resulted in 16 hours of sitting in a luxurious seat on a long flight. There are indeed great benefits for controlling our words. You know, what comes out of our mouth is a testament to our spirit-filled life or a lack of it. Sometimes we have to learn to simply walk away from a situation without saying a word or perhaps telling the other person or our family members, let's have that conversation when I'm not so angry or tired. I can personally recount many a times I've said hurtful things to my wife and children because I was angry or tired. Things said with the clarity and calmness of mind from a night of sleep will often be more effective. One of my favorite stories is told by John Orkberg in his book, When the Game is Over. He writes, a man is being tailgated by a woman who's in a hurry. He comes to an intersection, and when the light turns yellow, he hits the brakes. The woman behind him goes ballistic. She honks her horn at him. She yells her frustration in no uncertain terms. She rants and gestures. While she's in mid-rant, someone taps on her window. She looks up and sees a police officer. He invites her out of the car and takes her to the police station where she is searched and fingerprinted and put in a cell. After a couple of hours, she is released, and the arresting officer gives her back her personal effects and tells her, Ma'am, I'm so very sorry for the mistake, but we identified the wrong person, and you aren't the person I'm looking for. You see, I pulled up behind your car while you were blowing your horn, using bad gestures and bad language. And then I noticed the What Would Jesus Do bumper sticker, the Choose Life license plate holder, the Follow Me to Sunday School window sign, the Christian fish emblem on your trunk, and I naturally assumed you had stolen the car. The world gets pretty tired of people who have Christian bumper stickers on their cars, Christian fish signs on their trunks, Christian books on their shelves, Christian stations on their radios, Christian jewelry around their necks, Christian videos for their kids, and Christian magazines for their coffee tables, but don't actually have the life of Jesus in their bones or the love of Jesus in their hearts. My friends, as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to exhibit self-control and control our words. I know it's hard, but remember, we do it for the Lord and for our testimony to the watching world. The third area we are to exhibit self-control in is in the area of our intake. Self-control number three, control our intake. Control our intake. You know, another word I thought about using was the word consumption. But that word is often only associated with food. And this principle extends beyond food and drinks, but also includes activities, interests, and hobbies. Look what Proverbs chapter 23, verses 20 to 21 says about this matter. Proverbs 23, verses 20 to 21. Do not mix with wine bibbers or with gluttonous eaters of meat, 
For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and drowsiness will cloth the man with rags. Here the Bible warns us to stay away from those who drink too much or those who eat too much, because their actions will influence us to do the same. And the consequences of such actions can lead to laziness and poverty. Now, while I know there may be some outside factors that cause a person to drink heavily or overeat, such as stress, generally one who is an alcoholic or gluttonous does not practice self-control. They do not control their intake, which may result in financial hardships, the Bible says, which come not only from satisfying their cravings, but perhaps also through medical costs that are often associated with a lack of controlling one's intake, such as liver problems or diabetic or obesity-related issues that come from a lack of self-control. Now, further down in the chapter, in Proverbs chapter 23, verses 29 to 35, it provides a true and very unattractive description of the effects of one's inability to control their intake of alcoholic drinks. Verse 29, who has woe, who has sorrow, who has contentions, who has complaints, who has wounds without cause, who has redness of eyes, those who linger long at the wine, those who go in search of mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. Yes, you will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, or like one who lies at the top of the mast, saying, They have struck me, but I was not hurt. They beaten me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake, that I may seek another drink? In this description of a person who is drunk, the Bible shares some very common consequences of one who loses self-control as it relates to consuming alcohol. It is not simply a headache or bloodshot eyes that comes from a hangover that is the results of drunkenness, but possibly there are regrets and regrettable decisions from impaired decisions and judgments, and even bruises and pain that come from physical fights or stumbling or falling into things. And yet, with all of these terrible consequences from a lack of self-control, which is like the bite of a venomous steak, verse 32, at the end of verse 35, the drunkard says, they will continue to seek another drink. My friends, a lack of self-control will really destroy a person when they don't understand that they're walking down a path of self-destruction. Notice that the Bible does not prohibit our drinking of alcohol and eating of foods. We're simply cautioned to do so in moderation. The Bible doesn't teach that we need to practice an ascetic, or a self-denial type of lifestyle of withholding certain things, thinking it makes us somehow more spiritual or gain for us more of God's blessings. This sort of thinking is not biblical, as the Lord gives us things in life to enjoy. However, a self-controlled person is able to balance life in such a way that they abstain from sinful pleasures, but enjoy legitimate pleasures in moderation. The Apostle Paul wrote about this balance in his epistles, because even the pagan world in his time recognized that a life of balance, moderation, and self-control was the highest level that man could achieve. They called it temperance. The Greek philosopher Plutarch said, temperance is the greatest of the virtues. The Greek author Euripides said, 
temperance is the noblest gift of the gods. Glenn Pease writes, Christians were to reach this highest level in the eyes of the pagan world as examples of what surrender to Christ could enable even the common man to achieve. My friends, while we need to practice moderation, if you don't know how to limit yourself, then stay away from it. If you can't control yourself at a buffet, then don't go to a buffet. If you can't control your consumption of alcohol, don't drink. If you can't control your binge-watching of certain shows and telenovelas, then don't even start with episode one. If you can't control your scrolling of FB and IG stories and reels and getting envious and covetous, then deactivate your account. This is how we exhibit self-control, by not putting ourselves in a position where it is hard to pull away or stop. But instead, do not place ourselves into that situation in the first place. This is also self-control. However, I do recognize that controlling our intake is very difficult in our times because there are simply so many enticing options available to us today. Happy are those who are able to control themselves even with so many enticing options available, but it is hard. What happens when you tell your child you're going to take them to the mall? They're excited and happy to go on this excursion and spend family time with you. But then, let's say you pass by Toys R Us and Toy Kingdom, and they ask to only take a look inside. You naively agree, but you remind them they can only take a look but not buy anything. And so they look at all the toys available, and suddenly an attitude transformation happens. They're no longer happy simply to be with you at the mall. They're no longer happy with just looking. In fact, they are now sad because they can't buy anything. And you wonder what just happened. They were so happy before, but now they are sad. What happened was that their lack of self-control kicked in, and now they want everything. The many enticing options in the toy store overwhelmed the little self-control that they had. But this also happens to adults as well. We lose our self-control with all of the enticing options the world offers. Daniel Axt, in a secular article titled, Who's in Charge Here, wrote, Life in modern Western cultures is like living in a giant all-you-can-eat buffet offering more calories, credit, sex, intoxicants, and just about anything else one could take to excess than our forebears might have ever imagined. With more possibilities for pleasures and fewer rules and constraints than ever before, the happy few will be those able to exercise self-control. My friends, happy are those who are able to control themselves, even with so many enticing options available that the world offers. In a blog, Douglas writes, when my nephew Daniel was much younger, he used to love pepperoni, and he didn't just love it on pizza, oh no. If he had the chance, he'd chow down on slices of pepperoni straight out of the package. In fact, he used to get up early in the morning before anyone else was awake, find the package of pepperoni, and just eat and eat and eat. Until one time, he ate so much, he made himself sick. You can probably guess the end result of that. Daniel doesn't eat pepperoni anymore. At his 15th birthday party, we had pizza, and there was a choice between pepperoni pizza and plain cheese pizza. Daniel went for plain cheese. Do you like pepperoni, I asked? 
No, was his emphatic answer. That story reminds me of Proverbs 25, 16. Proverbs 25, 16. Have you found honey? Eat only as much as you need, lest you be filled with it and vomit. Of course, being a proverb, that instruction isn't really about honey. It's about self-control and knowing when enough is enough. It's about recognizing when you've had enough of something and being able to stop. And it's not just about food. It's about any activity that we engage in, reading books, watching TV, playing video games, talking on the telephone, exercising, working, and many other things. These things are not bad in themselves. In fact, some of them are quite good, but they become bad when we do not have the wisdom and restraint to say, that's enough now. My friends, look at the activities and intakes in your life and ask yourself the question, do I have the self-control to say, that's enough now? The fourth area we are to exhibit self-control in is in the area of our responses. Self-control number four, control our responses. Control our responses. Turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 12, verse 16. Proverbs 12, 16. A fool's wrath is known at once, but a prudent man covers shame. This proverb is teaching that a wise man, who perhaps receives an insult, does not react hastily, and by doing so, covers the shame he receives. But a foolish man reacts angrily, and not only may result in foolish, regrettable action, but allows the offending person to find satisfaction that he got to you, and you were affected. This verse is reminding us that we need to control our responses. My friends, a self-controlled mind will keep you from impulsive, foolish, hasty behavior. As tough as self-control is, we know without it, we create many troubles for ourselves. Look at Admiral Phipps, commander of the British fleet in 1750. When the British and French were fighting in Canada, Admiral Phipps was commanded to anchor outside of Quebec. He was given orders to wait for the British land forces to arrive. Then he was to support them when they attacked the city. But Phipps' navy arrived early. As the admiral waited, he became annoyed by the statues of the saints that adorned the towers of a nearby cathedral. So he commanded his men to shoot at them with the ship's cannons. No one knows how many rounds were fired or how many statues were knocked out. But when the land forces arrived and the signal was given to attack, the admiral was of no help. He had used up all his ammunition shooting at the saints. Someone wrote, People without a self-controlled mind create a wake of destruction. They blurt out whatever comes to mind, jump at the next golden opportunity, and knee-jerk react to please people or spew in anger all over them. Instead of delaying gratification and learning to wait on God in His timing, they take matters into their own hands, manipulate people, get ahead of themselves and God, and then have to find creative ways to clean up the messes they've made. Part of controlling and tempering our response, especially when we feel that we've been wronged or injustice has been done, is to remember that the Lord sees all and knows all and will vindicate in this life or the next. That's what Proverbs chapter 20, verse 22 tells us. Proverbs 20, verse 22. Do not say, I will recompense evil. Wait for the Lord and He will save you. 
my friends, we don't have to plot revenge. God will take care of it and make it up to you. And knowing this, we can control our responses. Knowing that our natural impulse is to respond immediately and react impulsively, we can also practice self-control by forming habits that will help us in the heat of the moment to temper our response. For example, if our natural response is to lash out angrily and speak impulsively, then we can form the habit of simply walking away or perhaps always waiting 24 hours before sending out an email or counting to 10 when we're angry or perhaps for some counting to 100. For all of us, we need to start the day by reading God's Word and centering ourselves in God's Word or praying as the first thing we always do when a problem arises. Those habits or coping techniques are practical ways of controlling our responses. Gretchen Rubin notes a surprising truth about habits, happiness, and self-control. She writes, As a writer, my great interest is human nature, and in particular, the subject of happiness. A few years ago, I noticed a pattern. When people told me about a before and after change they'd made that boosted their happiness, they often pointed to the formation of a crucial habit. Habits were the key to understanding how people were able to change. But why did habits make it possible for people to change? I found the answer in a fascinating book by Baumeister and Tyranny called Willpower. There, it writes, researchers were surprised to find that people with strong self-control spent little time resisting desires than other people did. People with good self-control mainly used it not to rescue in emergencies, but rather to develop effective habits and routines in school and at work. In other words, habits eliminate the need for self-control. My friends, what are the spiritual habits you do that help control your responses? The fifth area we're to exhibit self-control in is in the area of our sinful desires. Self-control number five, control our sinful desires. Control our sinful desires. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 16, verse 32. Proverbs 16, 32. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. This proverb notes that having self-control and specifically controlling your temper is better than being a soldier who victoriously captures a city. The idea is that it is harder to take control of your own sinful desires than to do other tasks. Because at the end of the day, how we respond to our desire is in our own hands. However difficult it is, we must be able to control our own lives. Each person is responsible for their own decisions and actions in response to their desires. And just as a mighty warrior is able to take a city as hard as it may be, we too can control our sinful desires. Think about how easy it is to cheat when no one will catch you. How easy it is to lust after someone, not your spouse, because no one can read your mind. How easy it is to engage in unethical actions and practices because everyone is doing it. How easy it is to spitefully plot someone's downfall just because you don't like them. But the choice for you to engage in your sinful desires or to disengage is in your hands. Without overthinking it, it boils down to you doing it or not. My friends, I recognize it's very hard to control desires, especially sinful ones. We just need to get in that last word or to win the argument. 
We want the satisfaction of berating someone to show we're better than them. We want the temporary pleasures of just one more drink or the pleasures of sexual passions outside the bounds of a marriage relationship. I want to have just one more. I desire to have my craving satisfied now. And these sinful desires are so strong that we just have to have it or we just have to do it. And we don't care about the consequences. But then, great regret comes when the consequences of those sinful desires come about because we do not have control over our sinful desires. Yes, we have the Holy Spirit to help us achieve victory over our sinful desires. However, He is our enablement and not our excuse when we fall into our sinful desires, blaming God that He didn't come to our rescue when we have already put ourselves into positions to fall into sin. It is incumbent upon us as followers of Jesus Christ to practice self-control and to control our sinful desires with the enabling help of the Holy Spirit. That's why we're warned over and over again to control our sinful desires and are to be reminded that self-control is achievable and for our good. Look what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I preach to others, I myself should become disqualified. Paul says he would discipline and exercise his body towards self-control away from sinful desires so that he would not be disqualified falling into sin. He also writes to Titus in Titus chapter 1, verse 8, and Titus chapter 2, verse 12, these words. But hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. My friends, the responsibility is on us to deny worldly lust and to live righteously and godly in this present age. Now, there are a couple of Greek words in the New Testament that are translated self-control. The word used in Galatians 5 in its list of spiritual fruit is ekrates and seems to mean, quite literally, in control. In Paul's letter to Titus, the word is sophranas, and that word has the curious meaning of to be in one's right mind. The sophranas person is in control of himself in the sense of not going wild and crazy and overindulging in life's pleasures. You see, on the island of Crete, where Titus ministered, the Cretan people were renowned for their gluttonous excesses of all kinds. Their besetting sins were mostly appetitive in nature and marked by too much food, too much drink, and too much sex. By contrast, Paul recommends sobriety in the sense of being in one's right mind, which is the mindset with which God created us to begin with. The self-controlled person respects God's boundary lines and so knows that although there may be nothing wrong with enjoying a cocktail or two with friends, enjoying too many drinks leads to drunkenness and out-of-control speech and behavior. The self-controlled person is also the one who knows that God has certain places in life where sexual intimacy belongs and certain places where it does not belong. That some foods are good for you or allowable in moderation, while others wreck health one bite at a time. Self-control is one of the Spirit's fruits and tools that enables the transformation to happen across a believer's life. My friends, self-control begins with a self-examination. 
So ask yourself the questions. Do I have control over my emotions? Do I have control over my words? Do I have control over my intake? Do I have control over my responses? Do I have control over my sinful desires? If you don't, ask the Lord to help you gain control over these areas of your life so that you can be a godly witness to the world and also so that you can cultivate a heavenly mindset to patiently wait for the glory and rewards that await us. Let me end by telling you about the marshmallow experiment. Daniel Goleman writes, The essence of emotional self-regulation is the ability to delay impulse in the service of a goal. The importance of this trait to success was shown in an experiment begun in the 1960s by psychologist Walter Michel at a preschool on the Stanford University campus. Children were told they could have a single treat, such as a marshmallow, right now. However, if they would wait while the experimenter ran an errand, they could have two marshmallows. Some preschoolers grabbed the marshmallow immediately, but others were able to wait what, for them, must have seemed an endless 20 minutes. To sustain themselves in their struggle, they covered their eyes so they wouldn't see the temptation, rested their heads on their arms, talked to themselves, sang, even tried to sleep. These plucky kids got the two marshmallow reward. The interesting part of this experiment came in the follow-up. The children who, as four-year-olds, had been able to wait for the two marshmallows were, as adolescents, still able to delay gratification in pursuing their goals. They were more socially competent and self-assertive and better able to cope with life's frustrations. In contrast, the kids who grabbed the one marshmallow were, as adolescents, more likely to be stubborn, indecisive, and stressed. You see, my friends, when we practice self-control and make it a part of our spirit-filled lives, it helps us resist the allure of life's temporary pleasures in order to gain the greater blessings of God's eternal rewards. More than two marshmallows, our self-control and the temporary hardships it brings is achieving for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as 2 Corinthians 4, 17-18 reminds us. For we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these reminders about self-control. I acknowledge that even in my own life, I often do not exhibit self-control. But I pray through the enablement of the Holy Spirit, all of us will be able to exhibit self-control in the areas of our emotions, words, intake, responses, and sinful desires. Because we want to live a life holy and pleasing, serving as a testimony to the watching world. But more importantly, Lord, the self-control we are able to exhibit in our lives will be able to remind us to have a heavenly mindset that we do not live for the earthly temporary things, but we live for the eternal wonderful things you prepared for us. Teach us about self-control. Help us to do so in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.